0: Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. Daryl Grove is not with me. He is up in Boston. He'll be back tomorrow, Wednesday, for a listener question spectacular. But for now, I'm going to be talking to The Athletic's Meg Linehan, also full-time with Meg Linehan's Meg Linehan. That makes sense. Meg, thank you very much for uh, once again coming on the podcast and then for talking about all the many things that are happening in NWSL this week. There are many of them.
1: Yeah, you know, it was funny because when I wrote this weekend like this could be the biggest week in Mm -hmm. women's, you know, in the NWSL, I was trying to not tip my hand (laughs) at that point, (laughs) but also kind of like signal like, hello, something major is coming beyond maybe just, you know, semifinals in the finals. That is
0: fascinating. I have that quote in front of me because I was going to ask you about it and reading it again. knowing what you know is coming, okay, now I get it. Because you were like, this is the momentum we're going to need. And I was like, yeah, I get it. Like, it's really exciting. We're at the semifinals. W- what? The, are there other things? And here we are. Now <laughs> I understand. Now I'm with you. Well, let's start yes. with that sort of sort of the news. Uh, Angel City is coming to NWSL. More specifically, LA is coming to NWSL. Uh, for people who have missed the reporting or haven't yet had a chance to read it in depth, who are the main figures uh, involved with the team? And how are 6,000 people going to choose which players to sign?
1: <laughs> yeah, the ownership group, the list is is pretty long. I think the joy of of their ownership group is that, you know, they, they obviously already have a point person. So the person that I have been talking to the most kind of throughout this entire process, like, you know, I, I broke originally back in June that these talks were even happening, right? And the one name on all of the paperwork there was Julie Ehrman, who is essentially the CEO and president of Angel City. Uh, which is not the final name of the team, but Mm -hmm. what they're going with right now. Um, But beyond just Julie, there is, I mean, I really do wish I had taken a video of me reading the list (laughs) when it was sent to me. So that way you could just progressively go through me reading this list and getting every single reaction because, okay, so it's Julie, right? Really at the heart of this team, I mean, I think this idea really starts with Natalie Portman.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, as, Karen as, as we all foresaw and uh, knew where it was going, yeah. and Natalie Portman would be heavily involved in an NWSL team. Why not?
1: Right, right. Uh, but Natalie Portman and then Karen Nortman, who is uh, a VC person. She's a partner at Upfront Ventures. Those two are really the ones that I think started this. Then they bring in Julie Ehrman. And then the other big name of the ownership group, like as the, the kind of key figures, is uh, Alexis Ohanian, mm-hmm. who... Uh, I mean, obviously, Reddit, all of that kind of stuff. People also might know who he's married to, which is uh, Serena Williams. You ah. know, just like another yeah. casual name sits mm-hmm, throw in the mix, course. who is also in this ownership group. Since, as Alexis told me on, on this bonus episode of uh, Full Time that I, I dropped this morning, um, he gifted ownership shares to both Serena and then their daughter, Olympia. Um so if people have not seen the tweet of Olympia Ohanian tweeting like proud owner, <laughs> Angel City as a two year old. Yeah. Incredible. Incredible.
0: Yeah, yeah I mean and uh, and lots of owners oh man, I'm I'm not yet a dad, but I guess I'm ready for the dad joke. Lots of owners <laughs> act like children and small babies. So I guess it makes sense from that perspective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lovely.
1: So You know, at 2 a.m. last night when we were working on this story, my editors and I were joking, and and Brooks Peck, who I'm sure you know, uh, was just joking, like, I need the Netflix series uh, Baby Owner from Netflix. (laughs) Like, it's just both him and Alex Abnos were really having a night with it. Um, Anyway, I mean, and like, so here's the fun part. Like, this is not even we're not even like halfway through this list. Right. So it's the entire Ohanian family. And then there's also 14 former U.S. Women's National Team players in the mix. Like Mia Hamm, Julie Foudy, Lauren Holiday, Abby Wambach, also Wambach's wife, Glennon Doyle. Uh, A whole bunch of, like, players from the 99 team. And then also you have a whole bunch of celebrities joining Natalie Portman. So Uzo Aduba, America Ferreira, Mm -hmm. Jennifer Garner, and Ava Longoria in the mix. And then, like, the list, again, continues to keep going it's just it's it's beyond absurd
0: so a couple questions there sometimes when you have a takeover of teams or like a new ownership group announced the more names that are on it the more like disconcerting that can become because it seems like okay does anybody have the like the money necessary to do this it feels like if it's kind of like slapped together this obviously does not feel like that i my assumption is that the it was an intentional move to have this many people involved because they wanted it to sort of be an open and like i guess like shared experience almost is that fair to say or was it the case that they needed that many people involved to raise those funds.
1: I mean, I don't think that any person on this list has enough money to like straight up own an NWSL team Mm -hmm. on their own. Right. Which is fine. I think personally, I do think that, um, they, they did build this in a way where there's a lot of people from like the VC world (laughs) in Mm -hmm. the mix on this, And I think that they're taking that sort of approach, which we've never really seen in the NWSL world before ever. Like, typically we get, you know, like one or two maybe primary owners and then some minority owners. And then this is much more of, I guess, you know, like a essentially LAFC model. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, But I do think that it's really interesting to see this come together. And I also don't think this is going to be the final version of this list Mm -hmm. either.
0: Uh, So... Go ahead, sorry.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's just it's it's definitely interesting. And, you know, we still don't really have full financial transparency in terms of like what the buy in amount is or or what sort of money they've raised so far. But uh, it does seem like they have enough money that they feel confident that they've got like this essentially like five year setup already in place.
0: And you mentioned that they're sort of similar in style to LAFC. I'm assuming that that is not an actual connection to them. But right now, do you think there's a chance that they end up playing some of their games at Bank of California stadium, or do you have any idea of where they might be looking to play some of their games?
1: One of, one of the big things that they need to figure out, and they've put in this deadline for themselves to have this sorted by the end of this calendar year is finding a venue partner. Mm -hmm. Uh, LAFC has kind of, straight up denied that. I know Kevin Baxter of LA Times reached out to them and they were like, it's not really us. LA Galaxy essentially declined to comment. I don't know if that necessarily really does point us in the final direction. I mean, something could, you know, there could be a venue choice that's kind of out of left field. I do think ultimately the the easier path for them for a venue partner is going to be an MLS team, but obviously there are advantages to Bank of California as opposed yeah. to uh, Carson. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, I I think that that's going to be something that they're still working out. And, um, you know, I think it will be not necessarily super easy to track as they go through those conversations, but at least something that that we
0: can all keep an eye on. And with the names involved, both from a national team standpoint, from a celebrity standpoint, combined with it being Los Angeles, Perhaps this is putting cart before the horse, but do they instantly become the most desirable team? Like you have the courage who up until recently were like indestructible and yet it feels like overnight they may be like vying at least for supremacy already.
1: I mean, I think it's really, it's going to be interesting because I do think that there is going to be an immediate appeal to playing in Los Angeles. Like absolutely, right? But we're also going to have to go through probably essentially like two rounds of upheaval when it comes to rosters between now and when uh angel city or whatever their their final name takes the field in 2022 so you know louisville's coming in next year they're gonna have to sort out their roster that's gonna you know potentially mess with some teams and then 2022 the other part of this that i think we're still gonna have to wait to see how this plays out i would I would be very willing to put money on the fact that NWL is not going to want to stop at 11 teams for 2022 and that they're going to try to find a 12th team mm-hmm. for that year. So that way there's an even number of teams. So I think that there's going to be a lot mm-hmm. <laughs> in play over the next, you know, season, uh, into the 2022 season before, You know, I think we're immediately going to start seeing big names linked to this team. I mean, Kristen Press and Alex Morgan are absolutely guaranteed to Mm -hmm. be linked to this team. But at this point, I mean, the Julie Arman told me yesterday, you know, like the soccer upside is not built yet. So it's it's definitely, you know, it's fun to speculate. But at this point, like it is there's so much that has to happen before they start building a roster Right at the moment that. It's at this point just speculation.
0: That makes sense. Uh, I I was reading your interview with Natalie Portman and she was talking about having – like direct sit down conversations with Alex Morgan about what the players were going through and about how she was sort of instrumental in a lot of, in a lot of sort of movements uh, within this organization that it felt to me as though Alex Morgan was, yeah, like basically going to immediately be heavily linked and very likely to move there. Do you think that would be like uh, an approach they would go for Is to get sort of one of those marquee U S women's national team names? And do you think Alex Morgan will be near the top of the list?
1: I think it's going to be really interesting to see who they, install on the soccer op side because I think that we have seen a couple lessons in this league when it comes to expansion teams on how not to build them. And that, that primary lesson comes from the Orlando pride and the Orlando pride immediately targeted Alex Morgan and, and kind of, um, gave up a long-term approach to building the team in order to, to aim for short-term results. And I think that we're still seeing them work through the consequences of that. And that's not to say that Alex Morgan is not a marquee player and an extremely talented player. Like I, I very much appreciate the talents of Alex Morgan, but I think the bigger question is, is do you go short-term try to get those ticket sales? Like, you know, there's marketing concerns around this kind of stuff or Do you look at the upcoming crop of extremely good, strong youth national team talent in this country and find a target there and try to build the team around them or a number of them, right? And then you're set for, you might not have that immediate bang for your buck around an Alex Morgan, but it's going to pay off for you for years,
0: so uh in terms of paying off in years, we would expect there to be that 12th team, or at least that's uh, what you're going with. I think that makes sense to me to have 12 over 11. If NWSL is looking for that final expansion team for now, do you think they're more likely to go with a sort of major market LA style approach? Or do you think, and I don't mean this to be disrespectful to racing Louisville, I love Louisville, it's one of my favorite cities, uh, but I am wondering, like, which is more likely do you think for them going forward to go kind of smaller market where they think that they have either team? Teams that are really hungry or markets that are really hungry or there's existing relationships as there are in Louisville? Or do you think the bigger city, larger market approach is necessary for keeping the the league, the teams kind of front and center?
1: Yeah, I think it's a really interesting time for NWSL. And they're also, I think the the goal is to balance both of those instincts, right? Like they absolutely, I think, had to get back into Southern California. I think there's also still potential for them to get back into Northern California, right, in terms of women's professional soccer, not necessarily. Obviously, NWL has never existed in the state period. But I think then the question becomes is what do you gain from a smaller market like Louisville, which is perhaps a much higher market saturation, right? There's not a lot of direct competition. There's no, you know, they're going to be the only like, top flight professional team in town, though obviously there's the USL team and there's a lot of college sports. So there's a win on both sides of this equation. And I think for the league, A, they're going to have, I think, a pretty decent number of markets that are that are actually in the mix for them. So A, they're gonna get their pick, right? So they can decide do we want to prioritize small market that we can maybe own at a higher rate or do we want to get ourselves into this major market where we might make a, a significant dent into a much larger population. So I think probably, you know, like the question is if Atlanta suddenly comes up to you and says, hey, we want an NW team and we're gonna we have the right ownership group, we're gonna do all of these things right, versus a smaller market. I think the question ultimately becomes
0: How quickly can you put a team in Atlanta? Yeah. I think that's, I mean, that that, that that would be my answer. Yeah.
1: (laughs) I mean, I think the deciding factor is who the ownership group is because this league has been burned before by trying to come up with these like short term solutions in terms of ownership groups. And I think everybody is still, if if they have any sense, is remembering what happened in WPS Mm -hmm. with Dan Borislaw and Magic Jack, right? Like, I mean I I thought I we weren't allowed I'm to like say a... that
0: team anymore. I thought that was like a Voldemort <laughs> situation and we just yeah. moved quickly on past that.
1: Right. I mean, like, granted, I'm like an old person now in this space, but like I very much remember those days. Like you have to learn these lessons of, of who you're agreeing to building this thing with. So, you know, I think that I think I hope those lessons have been learned, but I also do think that NWSL is going to have the luxury of Being able to actually look at these ownership groups in a really substantial way, whereas before it was kind of like we're in this not necessarily desperate situation, but we're kind of in a situation where we don't have as many choices. And I think that's really the beauty of this moment is that these conversations are still happening even in the middle of a global pandemic. There's still expansion teams coming in in the middle of a global pandemic, like the, the upside for women's soccer is extraordinary right at the moment, as, as Lisa Baird told me as well. Like they have a decade long plan for this league that revolves around the international calendar and how they can take advantage of it. So I, they're going to get a lot of phone calls between now and 2022.
0: Is it safe to say then that this is the strongest position that you've seen women's soccer be in in this country?
1: As of right now, I would probably say yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what cracks me up is I remember, God, I don't even know when this time has lost all meaning, but maybe it was probably around the championship last year, but there were just these rumblings of like, everybody's having some doubts about the NWSL, right? Mm-hmm. And it just, it feels like we get one of these like at least once a year. And I just remember laughing and thinking like, sure, maybe, but also, I don't know. And then to to have that vibe happen right at the championship last year and then to not have a real season and to instead have this challenge cup and still have this sort of news happening around the league it's just it it feels like such a different
0: time right now mm-hmm. more with meg Linahan in just a moment but first i wanted to let you know that this episode of the total soccer show is brought to you by Artifact. Artifact creates personal podcasts with the people in your life. Lots of peas in that one. Uh, we used Artifact to talk about how we started the Total Soccer Show. And then Daryl and Shannon uh, used Artifact to talk about Daryl's treatment and diagnosis. We've talked about both of those episodes already. Uh, you can hear the Daryl episode at heyartifact.com slash Daryl. You can hear the TSS origin story at heyartifact.com slash TSS. But you can obviously use Artifact for much more than that. You could give it as a wedding gift or an anniversary gift if you want kind of tell the story of a relationship. You could use it. Uh, I talked about potentially using it as a way to get parenting advice as we prepare for uh, our first child. Uh, many, many other things that you could utilize it for, including just sort of preserving a memory or preserving a moment or preserving a loved one. All of those are ways to go about utilizing Artifact. So, if you would like to utilize Artifact, when you're ready, you can use the code TSS to get $40 off your first Artifact order. Uh, once again, that's using the code TSS to get $40 off at Hey. Artifact.com. Thank you very much to Artifact for preserving the Total Soccer Show history, for letting Daryl and Shannon tell their story, and for uh, sponsoring today's episode. Now back to Meg Linehan. Well, let's let's stick with actual soccer being played. Uh, I do have more questions about Louisville, but we can get to those later or at another date. For now, like... I am sort of aware that I am praising, like, I'm really excited about NWSL, about this expansion with both with both markets and what that represents for, like, the future of women's soccer in this country. Simultaneously, though, I think it's easy to look at the Challenge Cup and see it as it's a big success. There are lots of eyes on it. We have sponsors coming in. That's all great. For the players, though, what has been sort of your read on how they're feeling about the Challenge Cup right now? I'm sure they're happy to be back playing but maybe not in these situations in these circumstances is it being seen as as a success or is it sort of another example of them having to do a thing because it's what's good for the sport in the country if not good for them individually
1: yeah I don't know if those two things are actually I think they can live together right where they did feel kind of this obligation Mm -hmm. of of needing to do it uh both both for themselves and for the league but I do think overall the vibe and, and obviously like every single player individually differs, right? There is this, like, this has been a success. We're working towards something bigger here, right? Like, I think everyone took the bubble extremely seriously. I think the reaction to, you know, the fans has been really positive from the players, but at the same time, you know, there has been this acknowledgement that living in a hotel for four plus weeks is, is a strain. Um, being in Utah is a strain. There's obviously much larger social issues happening at the exact same moment, right? Like they're not just necessarily talking about soccer right now. Uh, and a lot of players have been really upfront with how some of this has been affecting, you know, mental health and, and how they approach it. I mean, Bethany Balser, I think has really been leading the way in being extremely honest about what she's been going through throughout yeah. this tournament. So you know, I think that we definitely as, as consumers of the challenge cup have to consider how this is maybe going to affect players long-term and, you know, might not affect every single player the same way, but I think, you know, every single player fundamentally will come out of challenge cup in a slightly different way, just as having lived through it. So, you know, I do think fundamentally the NW Cell has done everything in good faith to try to have the tournament happen in a responsible fashion. And I think the players association has been very bought into that as a concept and, and the teams have been very bought into that as a concept, but at the same time, like, you know, not to like use our favorite uh, phrase that's in like every single television ad right at the moment, but like we are in unprecedented times, mm-hmm. right. And nothing is, is normal. And I think that, um, that's just a part of this that has to be acknowledged and, and addressed and, and talked about. And fortunately, players have been pretty willing to yeah. to actually talk about it.
0: Bethany Balser, especially, I found like the vulnerability there kind of amazing because with so many professional athletes uh, just for those like she subs out. Uh, there was some maybe like, oh, maybe she's just fatigued. Maybe it's a heat stroke or something like that. I think she said afterwards, like, no, I was having a panic attack. I've had them before. And <laughs> and I just – I don't think that many athletes would do that. I think a lot of athletes would go with like, oh, it was a bad day. Yeah, like the emotion got to me or something like that. There's like euphemisms that would be used. And I think you're absolutely right that vulnerability is commendable and should be supported. The question then becomes how would you advise supporters, fans, whatever – to support the league aside from like, you know, continuing to buy things to show sponsors that you care about it? Like, is it writing fan mail? Is it tweets? Like what are ways that people can go about sort of showing that appreciation and making players feel as though they are supported and their efforts do really have an impact?
1: Yeah, I think fundamentally, and I I remember talking about this with players even before the, the tournament happened, but I think a, like acknowledging that they are human, right? And like we think of athletes as kind of like these indestructible people, right? But obviously they have stuff that they're going through. So I think even just understanding that is step one. And then step two, you know, maybe is trying to just not necessarily expecting an interaction, but tweeting support and, and trying to, you know, send that support directly to a player or to a team. I, I think they really do notice that stuff. And obviously we've seen a lot of things happening around the challenge cup too, where, you know, fans are trying to buy coffee for the teams because there's this coffee truck on the grounds that like (laughs) players were, were paying for coffee out of their own pockets. And then instead fans have been trying to pick that up and make sure that they're not paying for that. So I think people have gone really out of their way to try to figure out how do we address some of these things. But I think fundamentally, like, the easiest thing to do is just, you know, if Bethany Balser shares an update like that, just Mm -hmm. reply and say, like, thank you. And, like, thank you for sharing. And I read this and it meant something to me, right? Because that, I think it just really shows um, that people are listening and, and actually, like, ingesting this as the fact that these are humans Mm -hmm. that are out here trying to do a job right and yes it's soccer and we all love it and and everything around that but like fundamentally there's so much Mm -hmm. has been asked of them to go into utah live in this bubble and like yes it's a privilege that they get to do this but also like there are still risks and everything else associated with it as well
0: and i think like People watching, uh, people can do that on Twitter, fans can do that. I think, like, members of the media, or I'll speak for myself, like, I think we could also be better about that just from a standpoint of, like, this is morbid. But, like, I was thinking about this the other week. Like, I wonder how many times a player has had a really bad game and I haven't thought twice about being like, oh, that's that was far below par. We expect so much more. And it was like they had to put their dog down or something that week. And that was on their mind. Like, and I think that we don't have that openness or the players don't always feel that openness. And so I think, yeah, embracing that probably gets you more honest answers and gets you more realistic answers that I think better help explain what's happening in a player's life or what's happening on the field to some extent. So I don't even know if there's a question there, more yeah. more so just that I, I think that's, yeah, wise words and a good thing to remember. And I thank Bethany mm-hmm. Balser and also you obviously for providing the quote in the first place, but we should talk about actual games uh, that are happening as well. Uh, we do yeah. have uh, Portland v. Houston Wednesday at 1230. Then we've got Sky Blue versus Chicago at 10 p.m. We had... A lot of minutes played in the last round. We did not have as many goals. Starting there, do you think that is uh, like basically showcasing that they had too many games in too short of time period without much preparation? Or does it speak to the reality that a lot of these teams were sort of midway through their roster construction when uh, COVID happens and when the shutdown happens so that they're not able to sort of approach this with those full squads? Is it some combination of the two? I'm guessing that's where we're going with it.
1: Yeah, I would I would definitely think it's some combination of the two, but I really also think that the league, obviously there was a time constraint to this because right after Challenge Cup ends, they've got lacrosse coming to the facility. So it's like they were kind of stuck in terms of how this was going to play out. But having four games in that short a time span did not help anyone. We even saw that really in the last preliminary round match for everyone. Like the, the quality definitely like... We, we went down a couple uh, notches on the dial. And I think then, you know, there were, there were two parts of this, too, of both, you know, I think fatigue and injuries and, and like, the list of things impacting the quality of, of, of the game is really long. Fatigue is one, but also, I mean, there's altitude. They're being played on turf. The heat is insane, although they at least have a slightly less terrible problem than MLS does in Orlando right at the moment. Um, Oh, is Florida hot in the summer? Yeah. No. Get out of here. Yeah. I mean, we were both at MLS All-Star Games (laughs) last summer. And that that was an experience that I brought up and never wanting to go back to Orlando in the month of July ever again.
0: Yeah. Nothing like being able to see the air while the sun is out to really let you know how hot it is outside. That humidity is not to be trifled with. Yeah. I'm with you on that. Right.
1: Right. So we have all of these things impacting quality of the game and, and how the players are feeling and all that kind of stuff. But on the flip side, and this is what I wrote about this past week and after the quarterfinals is we also had like some crazy great goalkeeping performances. Yeah. I mean, Britt Eckerstrom, like just totally absurd and it's super enjoyable to watch. And like that one, I think was really the standout one. And why why Eckerstrom got her own article from me as well is because you're going up against the North Carolina Courage kind of like At at least eighty to ninety percent of like full speed for them, right? Like they're not quite at a hundred, but they're still up there. And Dabinia is just like absolutely feeling herself, and Ekström coming up with like two major, major saves against Dabinia on a free kick, and then the one-on-one opportunity. Like, you know, as much as I think everybody would like to see goals in run of play, like it was also really hard to fault, (laughs) Mm -hmm. like the actual quality of the games I think did take a step back up for the most part um after that final preliminary round and and we did start to see like yes this is knockout soccer and and things are definitely at a different intensity level but yeah the goalkeepers I mean this past weekend were were phenomenal but I also don't think anyone would mind if we actually got (laughs) yeah some goals in the semifinals. I think that would be that would also be enjoyable these are goalkeepers
0: hate it. yeah they 'll be yeah. so good this time, like twenty percent uh, reduction in uh, <laughs> consistency would be fine daryl uh, i don 't want to misquote him because I think i 've done that twice before, and I heard about it from him, but I believe he was arguing that like Britt eckerstrom, who 's not even the, the uh, what the second string goalkeeper she 's the third mm-hmm. string goalkeeper like. That, to him, was an example of the the depth in certain spots within these teams. And so while Mm -hmm. I would argue like you do have a a lack of attacking depth sort of consistently across the board, there does seem to be, at least uh, in this case, some goalkeeping depth. What would you say is the sort of strongest position in NWSL in terms of depth? Like, if you're saying NWSL is a league that has the most best blank, what position do you think you're going with? Goalkeeper, defense, midfielder, or attack?
1: Ooh, that's a really good one. Probably. I mean, just in terms of like goalkeepers have the fewest numbers. So yeah. I think that's probably the easiest one probably so. to go with. But I do also think like when I think about talented midfielders in the NWSL, like that's the easiest one for me to just kind of like go across every team and be like, oh, wow. Like every single team has at least, you know, a, a good starting midfield. Right. Like mm-hmm. I would probably rank it as like goalkeepers and then midfield. And then probably forwards, like, again, defenders, like, there are absolutely some fantastic defenders in this league, but we're also seeing, you know, a a pretty fair number of people converted into outside back. I mean, we could bring up Mitch Purse in this situation, but um, that's where we're, I would probably rank it in that way.
0: Which, which then maybe also partially explains the lack of goals. If you're strongest depth-wise, or goalkeeper in midfield, not a lot of attacking, maybe not as much defending, maybe just some hoofing it long as well. That's probably a gross oversimplification. But what do you think we're gonna get in these two uh, in these two semifinals? Uh, because I, I mean this like both in a positive and negative. I am not sure which of them I'm more excited about because I think there are reasons to be excited about Portland v Houston. I think there's also reasons for skepticism, and I think the same goes for Sky Blue versus Chicago.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's really, I personally, I'm terrible at predictions, right? But I I am really interested to see, you know, the injury reports dropped earlier today. Portland is carrying a huge amount of injuries. Lindsey Horan, uh, Mark Parsons just just said, like, she's going to be a game day decision. Like, right down to the last minute, they will know on her. But uh, Megan Klingenberg is also questionable for the day. And then on the flip side, for Houston, the only one who's questionable is Megan Hoyster, who who literally has a fractured rib right at the moment. Yeah, which I don't understand how she's questionable with a fractured rib. Nor because do I. The one time I've had broken ribs, like if I coughed wrong, mm-hmm. I, I felt like I was going to pass out. If you so, breathe
0: wrong, you can, it hurts. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's quite the game so, day decision. And there's no, <laughs> as far as I know, there's no pain killing injection for a rib. I think it just yeah. it just stays hurting and stays broke.
1: Right, right. So I I do think, you know, historically, Portland obviously has the edge. Um, I think Portland has also, again, gotten some very clutch performances out of players that you wouldn't otherwise expect, like Britt Eckerstrom mm-hmm. and, you know, Morgan Weaver stepping up to score the game winning goal. But, you know, Houston, I think, came in looking extremely strong. And I'm very curious to see, they have yet to hit the high marks of that high press that they were using. Like they really started to, I don't want to like steal the the playbook out of the North Carolina courage, but it did resemble that in a lot of ways. And I think when you have Rachel Daly and Shea Groom and Christy Mewis on the field up front, like, I I think it's going to be a really interesting matchup between the two teams because I, I'm very curious to see just how much of the on the front foot Houston is going to try to be against Portland.
0: A question I have been wondering this entire tournament, and I have yet to ask, but I will ask you now. Are the Mewis' trash talkers? And if so, how much trash talk <laughs> happens between those two?
1: Um, I feel like they've got to be pretty high. I mean, like I know that I've been at... Sam is not necessarily, I think, the biggest trash talker. I mean, when I think of trash talk in the league, it would actually be... Uh, the Mew sisters, like one of their best friends, and Steph McCaffrey, mm-hmm. um, who is now retired. But I mean, um, Steph Young will also tell you the story. But like at a Boston Breakers game, she once called a ref a peon, like in the <laughs> in the heat of the moment. So like, um, you know, there there are definitely some like people who are chatty in game. I would bet Christie's pretty chatty. I can't mm-hmm. like think of anything off the top of my head, but um, you know, Houston's always had that kind of edge to them and I think it's kind of been not always to their favor in previous years where they have had this like chip on their shoulder attitude and like we don't get the respect that we deserve right and it's it's been brewing for a couple of years and I think now they've finally got truly the the team part of it um to go along with that attitude part of it and have it feel like it's productive instead of something that you know turns into this like defensive thing that they get trapped in.
0: Final question for you. Um, if people are just jumping into the competition uh, or have maybe like been like pay, been paying passive attention, who's like the one player or like what's the one thing you're going to be looking for or you find most compelling about each of the four teams we have left? Who's a player that could shine or what's one thing you sort of look to them to do, be it high press or bunker or anything in between?
1: Yeah, I think a couple of the big things that I'm looking for are if Lindsay Horan plays for Portland, uh, I think the goalkeepers, again, are going to be extremely important, right? Um, I think for Sky Blue, especially Kaylin Sheridan, it's going to be the player that I'm watching because she kept Sky Blue in it <laughs> in order to get them to penalty kicks. Um, and then I think, you know, the other big thing is we, we've got a couple teams in Portland and Chicago who we would traditionally consider, like, the bigger powerhouses of the leagues mm-hmm. that are both really carrying a lot of injuries compared to you know, in, in other times we would consider our underdogs of this competition in Houston and Sky Blue. So, um, yeah, I I think that there's, there's plenty of storylines going in, but, you know, biggest among them, I think are who's more injured than not.
0: That makes sense to me. There are plenty of storylines. I'm sure you'll be covering them for the athletic. I'm sure you'll also be talking them about them on full time. Uh, we haven't yet discussed that on air, so really quickly, I just wanted to ask how that's been going. How has your foray into podcasting been thus far?
1: Yeah, it's been really interesting because I'm I definitely uh, listen to podcasts, but I am not necessarily like a super in tune podcast person. So it has been really funny. I'm also um, I'm like the group project person that like is the one who's like, I own the Google doc and no one else can touch it. So, uh, it has been really funny to like do the work of like setting up a script and like questions and all that kind of stuff, because that is definitely work that I had never done before, but also like is very naturally, uh, in my wheelhouse. So I do think that my producer, Michael Zimmerman, who is a complete gem and like the show would not exist without him, but Um, I think it's always probably helpful for him when I just randomly in the middle of the day just send him like seven different Slack messages to be like, here's a doc for this and here's a doc for this. And (laughs) so it it just it has brought out my like type A personality a little bit. But other than that, it's been it's been pretty fun.
0: You know, until you said it, I've never really realized how critically important shared Google Docs are to the (laughs) To the running of, of the Total Soccer Show. It's really how we plan everything. So you're, you're right. That is the, that is step one in launching a collaborative podcast right there. So yes. Well done, Meg. Thank you for that. Thank you for full time. Thank you for appearing yet again on the show. And thank you for all that you do. I'm guessing you haven't gotten a ton of sleep the last month. Uh, hopefully you will sometime soon. Although I'm going to guess there's going to be even more breaking news for you to report uh, in the near future.
1: There's there's always something. Uh, women's soccer does not quit. So.
0: <laughs> all right. Well, thanks again, Meg. We appreciate it.
1: Thank you.